Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I'm Deanna Strabel. I'm the Chief Financial Officer of Principal Financial Group. We are a global financial service company based out of Des Moines, Iowa. So one of the things that I like to do is make sure I'm spending time with those that I have identified as high performers and making sure they understand there's not one path that we're looking for and there's not one definition of a successful executive, right? If we choose you to do this, we want you to approach it the way that works for you. Ultimately, you have to figure that out and define it, but don't deselect from even having that opportunity to be at the table to be considered for that. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Deanna Strabel is the Chief Financial Officer of Principal Financial. She speaks about making it to the C-suite while managing all of life's curveballs. Deanna, you're a first-generation college graduate. How did your parents shape your view of money? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So a little bit about my background. I, I grew up in rural Iowa. Um, as you mentioned, my parents did not um, go to college. They both were, um, my dad was a factory worker and my mom was a secretary. But one of the things they always promoted in me and my, my siblings was that education was very important. They actually supported and allowed all three of us to go to an elementary school and high school 30 miles away because they felt that the educational experience was greater. And then as I was looking at colleges, I actually ended up at Northwestern University. And for those of you that know about Northwestern, it's not the cheapest university that you could go to, but my parents never made that an issue. Um, they recognized the goal. They obviously, behind the scenes, figured out a way to make that work. I did have some loans, so there was some skin in the game, but they really made that, that education was important. And obviously, as you think about it, college graduates have much more earning potential than non-college graduates. So I think that just investing in yourself um, focusing on meeting your goals has always been part of what they raised me to believe. Did you feel a pressure being a first-generation college grad? I don't really think I did. I mean, you know, I think they exposed me to enough individuals that had that path to college um, that I just went day by day and was being as successful as I could. It wasn't a pressure that was put on me to be something different than my parents, because I think I always looked at my parents and thought they were successful as well, right? They took a different path, they focused on different things, but they were successful in their own realm. I was just had different opportunities to go a little bit different route, um, and so it really wasn't a pressure that I put on myself. About 11 years ago, your parents were involved in a life-changing car accident. What do you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, at the time I was um, at principal, so I've been at um, principal for 28 years. I had two children under the age of five, and my parents were in a car accident where my father passed away, and my mom was seriously injured and actually had about a nine-month recovery um, post the accident. And I was the only one of us children that lived close to where they were living and so was very much thrust into the caregiving role of helping my mom through that. 
Um, given the situation, she was also very insecure about being alone, just given that my her husband was taken so suddenly. And so it did take a lot of my time. Um, for over three months, I actually slept at the care facility in the hospital every night um, until she was able to get more comfortable with being alone. How did you handle such a busy job and also massive caregiving? Yeah, and then trying to raise two children under the age of five, right? So, you know, the first thing I would say is I have an incredible spouse. And so my husband, who's also um, works at the same company in a professional role, um, but his role doesn't have the same um, kind of time and travel demands that mine did or does. Um, and he's always been very, very supportive of taking his role as a father and, and helping with the children as well. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, it's all, I took one day at a time. Um, you know, I think, and I'm, I'm in a similar situation now with my mom where I'm now back into caregiving. And in any situation like that, if you think about what it could become or you think about how long it could happen, it can become so daunting and so emotional draining that I just focused on the day. And so I would look at the next day, I'd say, okay, here's how I'm gonna spend my time, here's what I'm gonna do at work. And I focused on making progress on that, then I went to the next day. The other two things that I did, and I think it's really, really important, is you have to be honest um, and transparent to those that you interact with about the situation that you're in. And so I think sometimes people would be um, not wanting to tell, for example, their team or their boss some of these personal situations that they're in. But when you're in a situation like that that's going to change either how you're approaching your job or the mood you're in about how you're approaching, having them understand it up front, um, making sure that they understand how you're going to be approaching things, um, I think just makes things easier because it's out on the open, people understand it, and you go forward. And the other thing I would say is you're, there are so many other people that have went through similar situations, and I think a lot of times you think you're alone and you're the only one that has these issues. But honestly, the more you talk to people, I'm always surprised that they all know someone that went through it or they themselves have went through it, and they all have some advice that they can give. What advice do you have for women who are worried about if they share that information in the workplace that they're going to be penalized, their careers may face a setback? The first thing I would say is um, it's very important, I think, that you find a company and a leader that you wouldn't have that situation, right? That may not always be the, the case. I've been very fortunate with my leaders and the company that I worked in that they um, respected and supported work-life balance um, and how to make that flexibility work. And it was more important about how you, how, what you got done, not where you did it or when you did it. Um, and, and again, that can't always be the situation, but I think long term for people to be happy, they have to be in a, a work situation where they feel supported by those around them. We spend such a big part of our day at work, and if you don't have that kind of comfort, you know, I think it's just going to be a long job and you're not going to enjoy it. So that would be what I would say. And, and honestly, if it, it ended up leading to something where they weren't supportive, it probably wasn't the right place for that person to be long term. You say women need to spend less time on meaningless decisions and act swiftly. What do you mean? We're busy. 
you know, I, I think we've shared that I've, I've had a number of, of successful roles within my company that all have extensive time demands. Many of us are married, we have kids, some of us have caregiving situations. And if you s spend too much time on things, it's gonna be very, very difficult for us to get done in a 16 hour day or you know, a, a 10 hour day what we need to accomplish. And so to me, it's always been very important to one, prioritize, but two, make sure you're spending the right amount of time on anything that you're facing. Again, we, anything we face, we could make it a four hour duty or a four day duty or a four month duty and stepping back and saying, wow, this thing that's in front of me, this should really be a four minute situation. And let's get through it in the four minutes and move on versus trying to spend too much time that's worth it. I've always said, you know, at some point in time when you're facing an assignment, you reach it a point where you're not going to add any more to that. But I think sometimes either to make us feel more confident in our decision or to back up what we're doing, we will spend the extra time, even though it's either not changing the decision, not changing the recommendation, or really not changing how we're presenting it. And the more you can acknowledge that and cut that extra work out, the better we can all be. Do you see women spending more time than needed, more so than men? You know, that's a stereotype, and you can probably find examples of pe women that do and men that do and women that don't and men that don't. But I do think our general tendency is probably a little bit more of a perfectionism mode. And so we want to do it all and we want to do it the best. And we have probably a little bit more lack of confidence, which then makes us try to do a little bit more to feel more confident about it. So I do think there's probably some gender aspect of that. Um, and ultimately, we got to figure out how to get around that. Do you think there's such thing as work-life balance? I actually don't. Um, I th I've always termed it work-life fit, not work-life balance, because to me, balance implies balance. <laughs> and almost that you're spending the same amount of time on work and life. And honestly, if you just look at the clock, that's not the reality. And secondly, at any given time in your life, one of them is going to be a little out of balance. And so to me, it's much more of how do you make them fit together and make you feel good about both aspects of your life. And that's going to change. You know, how you define work-life fit when you have two kids that are under the age of five is going to be different than how you define how work and life fit when maybe your kids have both left for college. And so you have to be um, recognize that, but ultimately let that morph over time. But personally, you have to figure out the, how you define how they fit. And I think balance um, honestly puts too much pressure on women because they think they should be in balance. And I don't think in reality they can. There's going to be times in your life where work is going to have to take a little more priority. There's going to be times in your life where personal demands have to be a priority. And that in and of itself is out of balance. And so again, work-life fit has been my mantra, not work-life balance. Did you ever think you'd become CFO? So honestly, I don't know if I've ever anticipated the next role that I had. And I'm not sure when I started college, I even thought I was going to be an actuary. So when I started at Northwestern, I thought I was either going to be an actuary or an attorney. 
Um, very different paths. Um, I ended up taking the actuarial route. But in actuality, I only did that work for about five years of my career. Um, then I decided I'd rather move more into like product development, product management. I then spent about 20 years um, man running different aspects of our business, so uh, profit and loss positions. And that culminated in me being the president of one of our four divisions. Um, so we have four divisions, and I was president of one of those. And then actually a year and a half ago, our CFO was retiring. And our CEO approached me. I was reporting to him, but from a different role, and told me that I really like you to move into this role. And honestly, my first response is, I really don't have an interest in doing that. I loved running a business. I loved leading very diverse teams with very diverse um, challenges. And to me, from my seat, it felt like the CFO was um, kind of less diverse. You know, by the means of the word, you're most things you're approaching on a day-to-day -day basis is financially focused. Um, and so I actually said no. Um, and he asked me to help interview in the process. So I actually was interviewing other candidates for this role. And he just kept coming back. And ultimately, our CEO is very convincing. And he approached it in a way that I felt like it could be a good move. I had been in the same business for many years. So I thought uh, um, learning the rest of the company would be beneficial to me. And I also felt that moving into the role from running a business would allow me to approach it from a different role. And so, no, I, I've never, every role I've had isn't been one I've sought. Um, and really not even in many situations something I initially was intrigued about. But every position and situation has helped me develop, helped me been more successful. And even though I initially didn't like it, it's been a rewarding job being in this role. Coming up, Deanna talks about finding the fortitude to see her goals through to the finish line. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. What's your advice for women who want to work their way up within the same company? So I've been a principal for 28 years, and I, I think that's very rare these days and probably is going to become even more rare as we go forward. But I've had nine different roles in 28 years. And so I actually look at it as I've worked similarly to nine different companies um, because many times those were in different parts of the company with different leadership, somewhat different culture. Um, and so my advice, whether it's in the same company or in different companies, is first of all, do the job that you have the best that you can. That's my first advice to anyone because I think sometimes people get too focused on the next role or too focused on a different role 
And because of that, they're not fully being successful in what they're doing. Secondly, it's always, even though you're being, you're in a role with a particular accountability, how do you rise above that and make sure you're seeing the big picture? So you're seeing the connections with the rest of the company. You're understanding, maybe if you're not in a customer-facing role, how do you still understand the end customer and how what you're doing connects to that? And then the other advice I'd have is take the time to network and connect. Um, and so again, it's, it's picking out four or five people, whether it's within your own company or within the industry or within other companies within the town that you live in. And how do you find those networks that one, can give you honest advice, two, potentially be your advocate within the company, and three, just allow you to learn more about other parts of the company or other industries so that you have a different perspective on what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? You've spoken to plenty of young women who have said they don't want to get promoted. Uh -huh. What's going on there? So I'd say the first is um, I don't think they feel like they see a role model that they want to assimil assimilate to. So I think a lot of times they'll look at who they see in that, that next level or the level above that. And they see them, for example, one, many situations, they're male dominated, so they don't see a female role model. In a lot of situations, they may see people that are working a number of hours that they don't see that they can do and still fit the rest of their life in. Um, and so they're really self-selecting because they can't see themselves being or acting like the people that they see in those roles. So even earlier in my career, I would say that a lot of the female executives in our company had really become successful by almost taking on the persona of almost like a male. So in many situations, they may have not had children. In some situations, they were the first one in the office, the last one there. Um, and even for me, I'd look at that and say, that's not what I want my life to be. And so I think that's what gets perpetuated. And they're almost deselecting themselves before they've even given a chance to understand it. So one of the things that I like to do is make sure I'm spending time with those that I have identified as high performers, sharing my story, sharing how I have balanced my work and life, and making sure they understand there's not one path that we're looking for and there's not one um, definition of a successful executive, right? If we choose you to do this, we want you to approach it the way that works for you. And ultimately, you have to figure that out and define it. But don't deselect from even having that opportunity to be at the table to be considered for that. What's it like to be one of the few or perhaps one of the only women in the room? It's, it's hard. Um, and, and I'll actually go back a little bit. And when I, um, I'm not saying this to, to brag or anything, but I was the youngest ever senior vice president at Principal. And so I, I felt kind of like a double whammy. I was not, all, not only the only women in the room, I was in many times 20 to 25 years younger than the men that were in the room. It was easy to be insecure in those situations. And I finally just had to step back and say, I'm in the room because they thought I deserved it. I do have something valuable to add. And this may sound elementary, but I had to like force myself 
to contribute. I told myself, this next meeting I go to, I'm going to make sure I talk three times. And then the next time it was four and the next time it was five. But, you know, when you're not seeing somebody that you connect with, um, it, can, it can be lonely. And, and luckily I work for a company that was very committed to see female and other types of diverse candidates advance within the organization. And so, again, I went from that situation to if you go to today and we look at our executive management team, we're now 50% female. Um, and we, there's value in that. There's value in diversity, whether that be gender, whether that be ethnic, whether that be age, because we all approach problems differently from a different perspective. And so I think the more we can understand that we're there for a reason and what we're going to say is valuable, um, but it, it can be lonely at times. You were an officer of principal through the IPO. I was. How did that affect your financial life? Um, you know, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be very successful, and obviously there's been financial rewards that have come f- from that. I, you know, I'm not sure it's changed. I think I've always been fairly compensated. One, how we're compensated is differently. We obviously have ways to compensate ourselves that's more stock-based than cash-based, and I think that allows us to have more skin in the game relative to the success of the company. Um, I think we run our company better as a public company than we did when we weren't a public company. As a CFO, I hate the process of every quarter having to basically share, open up your kimono and share all the positives and negatives about the financial position of your company. But it does force everyone in the company to run that company more successfully. Um, And so I think we're a more successful company, which allowed me to have more opportunities than I think I would have had if we would have stayed um, as a private company. Did you go out and buy anything after the IPO? New car, new. <laughs> so, you know, there wasn't an immediate windfall. I think we all got 200 shares of stock or something, which, no, I didn't do that. Um, there's been times where I've had some options expire that I felt more comfortable doing something than maybe I would have before. Um, but I think for those of you that know me, I'm not an extravagant spender, um, but it is nice to have some of those other elements of rewards. What do you say to women who want to invest but are afraid because they don't like math or whatever reason? Yeah, I think um, financial, any aspect of finance, so whether it's how to save for retirement, how to pay off your loans, how to protect yourself with different types of insurance, those all feel complicated and overwhelming. And I think at times, females in particular, maybe because historically, Culturally, that was more the what the male took care of in the family. But I think it's so complicated that I think we fail to make any progress. And so my advice to people is break it down and take it one step at a time. And so I think if you sit down and you think of everything possible you should do from a financial perspective, I think you're going to become paralyzed and not make any progress. And so whether that's... so. Figure out what your biggest priority is. I think for early on in your career, hopefully it's potentially saving for your retirement. But even that can be daunting because you pick up the paper, or you hear on the news, and it says you should be saving 15% of your income. 
Well, I think in many situations when you get your first job, there's no way you think you you, you can't. You can't make ends meet if you put aside 15% of what you you make. And so I think sometimes then I can't put aside anything. Well, what can you put aside? So let's say you're comfortable putting 5% aside. Well, get started. Put 5 And then say, wow, if I get a raise next year of 4%, why don't I take 1% of that raise and increase 5 to 6 I still got a raise. I still got a raise and have more money to spend, but I've started to make progress on that goal. So my advice is break it down and take it one step at a time. What type of investor are you personally? You know, interestingly enough, I honestly leave most of that to my husband. So um, even though people would think that's odd given my position, um, because of what we talked about earlier, we have very much a divide and conquer perspective. Um, and so he takes care of a lot of that. I give input. I know where it's at. If anything would ever happen, I could take that over. Um, but he has more passion for it than I do. Um, and so I, I think that's fine. I think you all have to figure out what the role is. I'd say I'm probably moderate to a little aggressive. Um, because I understand we're investing for the long term. Um, And so, again, when you're investing for your kid's college, you might need to have a different approach. But if you're 35 or 40 and investing for when you're 65 or 70, we're going to live through cycles of pluses and minuses. And so we should be taking advantage of the ability to let that grow more. You said passion typically makes you more resilient when setbacks occur. What do you mean by that? So if you're day-to-day approaching things with passion, and I think that can be a number of different realms, you're just going to have a different perspective of things. So one one, two examples I'll give there. One, financial services. I think people think of financial services as a very staunchy, boring, um, kind of slick kind of perspective. When I think of what our company does, we help people. We help people prepare for retirement. We help people when they face difficult situations, whether that be when um, they have a loved one pass away unexpectedly or they become disabled. And that makes me approach my work every day differently than if all I'm looking at is the numbers that we're making on a monthly basis. And so I think, so that's a kind of a work example that, you know, I come into work knowing we are helping people. I used to run our disability business and I'd have an opportunity to talk to our claimants who would share stories that they wouldn't be able to put food on their table without the check they receive from us every month. Um, That makes what I do important. Um, And then I think passion, um, I helped start probably about 15 years ago, our women's network for leaders. Um, And that has put me in a position to help continue to facilitate a culture that embraces, um, one, diversity, but also allowing women to take advantage of opportunities and continue to develop. And even though that's not in my job description, that's not something that my leaders judge me on in a day-to-day basis, that makes me feel like I'm making a difference to, you know, many of our 15,000 employees across the globe. 
And so again, if you have passion about what you're doing, you like who you're doing it with, um, it just makes things so different than if you don't have that same level of passion. Time now for your secrets. I'm Deanna Strabel, and my money secret is to make sure you're not just investing for today, you're investing for the future. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.